Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I hope you all had a magnificent Thanksgiving holiday last week. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to drop a quick note. One of the subjects for the episode you're about to hear is the storyline Camelot Falls, written by Kurt Busiek and drawn by Carlos Pacheco. Of course, Carlos Pacheco sadly passed away earlier this month on November 9th, 2022. We recorded the episode you're about to hear long before his passing. In fact, we recorded it a few months ago. So I just wanted to let you know, as you were listening to the episode, that's why we are speaking of Carlos Pacheco in the present tense and not making reference to his passing or prior illness. I just wanted to give everyone a heads up about that before you dive into the episode. I opted not to re-edit or re-record the episode because I wanted to present it as originally intended and recorded, Uh, but I just wanted to give everyone a heads up about that. More importantly, I wanted to take this opportunity to express my sincere condolences to the family, friends, collaborators, and fellow fans of Carlos Pacheco. Uh, Like so many of you, I was uh, very saddened to hear uh, first of the news of his illness and then, of course, of his subsequent passing. Of course, we do speak about Carlos Pacheco in the episode, and we speak very highly of him and his and his tremendous, glorious art. Uh, as you know, if you're a regular listener of the show, we do tend to focus more on the writing side around here. So I'm sure as as you're listening and, and as I re-listen to the show, uh, we'll be thinking, oh, we should have said more. We should have said more about uh, just what a tremendous talent uh, he was, and, and in particular in that story, Camelot Falls. Uh, but the best way I suppose to, you know, to, to remember him, at least from the fan perspective, right, is to enjoy and celebrate the work. And so, uh, even though the timing, this was not, of course, what was the original intention, uh, when we recorded this episode, but to whatever extent this episode can serve as any sort of tribute, uh, just as when we did our episode, um, after this passing of Tim Sale, you know, to whatever extent that we can, we can honor these creators by celebrating their work, work that will will always live on and will be there for us to revisit and for new fans to discover. Uh, to whatever extent we can do that, um, I'm happy to do that. Uh, so I really hope that you enjoy uh, this episode. Uh, we talk not just about Camelot Falls, we also talk about the Black Ring storyline uh, written by Paul Cornell and drawn by Pete Woods. Uh, my guest is Chris Clow from the Comic Binge and Discovery Debrief podcast. He's a first-time guest on this show. If you've been listening to my other show, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, I hope you have been listening. Uh, Chris was a guest on one of the early episodes there. We talked about The Case of the Talkative Dummy from season one, uh, but this is his debut appearance on Digging for Kryptonite. Uh, again, I really it was, it was a pleasure to kind of shine a little bit of a light on Camelot Falls and Black Ring. Uh, not that they're so under the radar here, but... Uh, it has been it has been a minute since those stories came out, and I don't know how often they're necessarily in the conversation these days. And it was great to be able to, again, have that discussion and shine a little bit of a light on them. So again, I just wanted to take this opportunity to share all of that with you. Uh, again, express my condolences, uh, and now share with you this episode that we recorded a few months ago on Camelot Falls and the Black Ring. I hope you enjoy. My journey as a Superman fan started with a tattered red cape blowing in the wind. That ending rocketed me forward like a red-blue blur through a decade-long origin story and poignant tales of self-discovery and now fatherhood and backward to the character's very beginnings. Now, on this podcast, we journey together across time and media to examine the stories that have defined the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. 
I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Superman Camelot Falls by Kurt Busiek and Carlos Pacheco, as well as The Black Ring by Paul Cornell and Pete Woods, is podcaster and first-time guest, Chris Clow. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation, Anthony. I really appreciate it. It's, a, it's an honor to be here and to talk about the world's greatest hero. Absolutely. I'm so glad that we could connect for this. I guess we have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Zach Moore, from the Always Hold On to Smallville podcast. He had us on his show not too long ago to talk about the season seven episode of Smallville Persona featuring yes. Smallville's version of Bizarro. Uh, so that was the first time that we met and we got to talk Superman and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, no, it's always good to be able to jump on Zach's show. And he's a, he's a little bit of a kingmaker of his own. So it was cool to be able to to jump on that with the, with the both of you guys. And talking comics is just one of my absolutely favorite things to do. So much appreciated. Well, speaking of, of talking, podcasting, comics, uh, what are the shows that you are involved with that folks might want to check out? Sure. So currently right now, um, my primary show is Discovery Debrief, which is a Star Trek podcast. And basically me and three other fans uh, get together and talk about all of the new episodes that are coming out because there's a lot of new Star Trek that's coming out. And we've just uh, finished up Strange New World Season 1, which is a fantastic show uh, that kind of harkens back to the original series. And then um, I uh, occasionally show up on episodes on the Batman podcast network with my buddy Ryan Haas uh, and my friend Paul Herman and I have a regular YouTube weekly show called The Comic Binge, where we dive into a bunch of different story arcs and just try and communicate our love of the medium to, to as many people as we can. And we're actually in the middle of a binge right now that kind of deals with the lead up to infinite crisis and then we'll jump into the main series and weave through some of the tie-ins there and then we'll jump into 52 the weekly series so we got a lot of uh dc around this era so one of the stories that we're going to talk about fits right in there which is just uh, i've been talking a lot about like 2006 7 8 dc comics so this will be fun it's already kind of in my head Oh, that's perfect. That really dovetails nicely. Yeah, I was so happy that you were keen to do these stories when I reached out to you. And both of them fall within that post-Infinite Crisis, pre-Flashpoint era of DC Comics and Superman. And interestingly, I mean, these stories effectively bookend the New Krypton saga. Camelot Falls comes right before, very shortly before New Krypton. And then Black Ring is, is right after I will admit, I still have not read the entirety of the new Krypton saga. At the time, back in the day, I had read the first few installments, and then I always intended to go back to it. And I, I do intend to get to it for the podcast. And for anyone who's really been paying close attention, I know I've said that we were going to get to it this year along with the Krypton TV series. We just had so much to cover. So we're going to push <laughs> that to next year. But we are still getting to the new Krypton saga and to the Krypton TV series. But that was one of the reasons why I thought these stories would be cool to talk about, because at least they're dealing with that same period. And and again, kind of get you you know going into and coming out of that storyline. Yeah, that's that's a really excellent point. But honestly, too, um, your experience with New Krypton also seems to be the experience of DC editorial because they spent like several years building that up as the thing that was going to drive the titles for at least a couple of years going forward. And then it ended so abruptly and quickly and you consider the the journey that the titles went through across a bunch of different writers and it all kind of just ended up funneling into a single month 
uh, one issue that came out per week in May of 2010 to finish the whole thing off is a very strange kind of occurrence. I feel like they did an okay job of sticking the landing, but uh, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about it when you get around to it, because I haven't revisited it since it came out. This is probably more of an off mic question, but I, I guess my question is how how worth it is it? Because I will admit it was a little daunting. I pulled up the new Krypton page on the DC app. And oh boy! <laughs> and, I mean, and it's over a hundred. It's just over a hundred issues across the various yeah. titles. I mean, that's a, a bit of a haul. Do Do you think it's from what you remember of it? I know you haven't gone back to it, but is it is it worth that much time? I guess. Well, I mean, considering how dedicated you are to unpacking Superman for you, I do think it's probably worth the time and effort. If you were just kind of randomly looking for something to read on DC Universe, I would be more reticent to recommend it just because the stuff that led up to it was really good. You know, you had Jeff Johns that uh, made a statement on Action Comics even uh, before the the first story that we're going to talk about. Um, but he was also an architect of New Krypton. Um, and then he brought in James Robinson. And from what I understand, James Robinson didn't realize that he wouldn't have access to Superman while he was writing the main monthly title uh, and had to kind of pivot to accommodate Monel. And Monel's a cool character and he did some cool things with him. But uh, losing Superman in Superman and in action was kind of rough. Uh, but you did have a pretty solid 12 issue series world of new Krypton with Greg Rucka. That's probably my favorite stuff because it dealt with Superman and how he was dealing with basically getting his culture back. Um, but the entire thing is such a behemoth and it does run the risk of being unwieldy that I, I don't know if I would recommend it to someone who's not uh, committed, let's say to talking more readily about Superman. Um, but Maybe you'll feel differently when you do get around to it. I, I, I'll be fascinated to hear what you have to say. All right, I, I appreciate the insight. I was hoping for I was hoping for an out, but I yeah, your <laughs> your insight <laughs> your insight is greatly appreciated. And for the audience, for the audience, I'll I'll do it. So we'll, so we will get there. But in the meantime, we'll talk about these stories. Actually, one last preliminary question: uh, something that I do like to ask first time guests on the show. If you could tell me a little bit about your Superman fan journey. How did how did you get into the character in the first place? And I guess the other question that goes hand in hand with that that I always like to ask, for myself, it's Smallville and Death of Superman. I consider those two of the major tent poles of my fandom. Like, what are the tent poles of your Superman fandom? Oh gosh, that's a it's it, it's a very loaded question. Let me let me tackle the first one first. I'll tackle them in order. The origins of my fandom, honestly. I don't really know. I don't remember a time in my life without Superman. My brother, uh, who's five years older than me, was a big fan of, uh, of of checking into comics at the time because this was the moment where, like in the early 90s, where you could get comics at gas stations and convenience stores, you know, just grab them off the rack. And my dad would go to a regular gas station and pick a few comics off the rack and toss them in my brother's direction. And then when he was done with them, toss him in my direction um so when i was and i was born in late 87 so i was about four and a half five years old when the death of superman really kicked in and everything about that it was just such an unusual time because the mainstream culture was obsessed with comics very briefly but they were um 
And I was really caught up in that. I was really caught up in the sadness of losing this guy because I was a kid. I didn't know that it was going to change, right? Um, so that story, probably similarly to you, it just kind of set me on a path to pay closer attention to Superman. Uh, Lois and Clark started around that time. And Lois and Clark was a, a really influential show. I just remember being thrilled at the concept of watching live action Superman on a regular basis. Uh, and then it just kind of never left. I, uh, in a lot of the other comic space podcasting that I do, I honestly express that my favorite characters in fiction fluctuate between Batman and Superman. Those are just the characters that I gravitate to the most. I have had to defend Superman more. So um, I kind of feel like I'm a little more in the Superman camp a lot of the time just because I feel like he de he deserves it and he needs it, which is kind of frustrating. But um, that really set me off on the path. And then I started working as a comic book retailer in 2007, right out of high school. And uh, I would have that job for about seven years and um, just completely immerse myself because no one else on the staff knew anything really about modern Superman. Um, so I was the point person that took the bull by the horns and communicated to our customer base why you should be reading Superman. And I'm very proud to say that we upped our Superman order significantly while I was there. Um, but in terms of tent pulls, that's a lot harder to answer. I mean, I think Superman the movie is probably like near the top of the list just because I obsessively watched that movie as a kid. It was weird. I had a clamshell of Superman the movie, but I also had uh, just a cardboard tape of Superman 4. So I didn't really understand the quality differential at the time. It was just, it was all Superman to me, you know? And um, my dad and I, uh, he was born in 1944. So he was like 10 years old when the George Reeves show was on. So that was really important to him. As soon as the serials, the original serials came out on VHS, we would spend one Saturday or watch one episode every Saturday for like 13 or 14 weeks, however many episodes there was. I've got a lot of fond memories of that. So it's just Superman has been a very, very important part of my life. And as I have gotten older, I've only grown to appreciate what he means more as a symbol of hope, as a symbol of aspiration, and um, as, as a barometer to measure how we choose to live our lives based on the circumstances that we're given. Um, what he says about being for everyone. That's one of the things that I love about like Jeff Johns's characterization, for instance. Uh, the confrontation between intolerance and tolerance and being uh, just a symbol that anybody can look to and feel inspired. That gets to the core of who Superman is and what he means to me, at least. I feel like I'm leaving a lot out, but for the, for the purposes of time, um, without gushing overly much, um, I mean, Superman is just extraordinarily important to me and is the world's greatest hero in my estimation. Well, beautifully said. I, I echo all of that. And I can see why Zach connected the two of us, because born in 87, death of Superman, worked at a comic shop. <laughs> so we have a lot of, a lot of similarities here. So I, I can really identify with, you know, with what you're saying. And as far as, you know, what you're saying about the nature of Superman and what he stands for, I think that's a perfect segue into the stories that we read and I'll give a quick summary in a second, but and I don't say this to to pat myself on the back, but 
did these stories not pair perfectly together? Oh, no. I think you you nailed it when pairing these together. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's just like the, the two sides of the coin and uh, the grander importance that Superman has to like a stable society in the DC universe. There's a lot of commonality here in that in that respect. Yeah, I you know, I had read... I'm trying to remember. I had read, I think, a little bit of Camelot Falls at the time. I don't think I ever read the entirety of it. And I do know that there were delays and the the 10 issues did not come out 10 months in a row. I think the first five came out and then there was a break and then three and then one and then it ultimately wrapped up in an annual. Uh, so I know that I'm sure that didn't help the the momentum or the readability of the story at the time. So I had read a little bit of that, but I don't think I had ever read the full thing. Black Ring, I think I had read the whole thing at some point, but it had been a long time. And as I was saying to you off mic, I did read the death issue of that storyline uh, not too long ago when we covered uh, Lex Luthor. We did our big Lex Luthor event. So that's what kind of put the story back on my radar. And I thought, oh, it'd be interesting now armed with all of this Lex reading that I've done to take another look at the story. But yeah, what you end up with when you look at these stories together, and for anyone who hasn't read either or both of them, and if you haven't read them together, I really do recommend it because you get a very interesting meditation on the nature of Superman and Lex Luthor when you put these stories together. And I had the exact same thought as what you articulated. You really get two sides of the same coin. It's really fascinating. Like I truly had a very enjoyable experience reading these two stories. Yeah, I did too. Um, I uh, have revisited Black Ring more than I have Camelot Falls, but uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, Superman books at the time that Camelot Falls were coming out, it seems, were prone to scheduling conflicts because not only did Camelot Falls have a rather irregular schedule, but so did Last Sun in action with Jeff Johns and Adam Kubert. Uh, very similar in that those titles were running uh, consistently for a little bit, and then there was a hiccup in the schedule, and then it was several months, and Busick actually pitch hit on a couple of uh, intervening issues of action there. And it ultimately ended up wrapping up in an annual as well. Um, but Last Sun seems like it's, uh, at least among Superman fans, more commonly discussed than something like Camelot Falls. At the time I read it originally, I remember feeling like it was an extremely disjointed story. Having the benefit of being able to read all of the issues closely together uh, I don't have that criticism of it anymore. Um, and I'm sure that we'll get into it, but, uh, no, it was a really pleasant experience reading this again. And Busick, as he has done in so many other titles that he's written, uh, I think your choice of the word meditation is extraordinarily apt because he does spend time with not only, uh, the perceptions of other people when it comes to Superman, but his own perceptions of himself and what he wants to be and what he chooses to be every day. Uh, that's something that came through a lot more in my time reading it here. Gotcha. No, that, that totally tracks with, with my reading of it as well. So, you know, for anyone who is not familiar with Camelot Falls, again, this was a storyline in the Superman title by Kurt Busiek and Carlos Pacheco. And in it, the ancient Atlantean sorcerer, uh, Arion, uh, basically challenges Superman's existence and role in the world and makes the argument that his presence is ultimately a hindrance to the advancement of human civilization. The idea is that civilizations are supposed to rise and fall. Camelot falls, right? 
civilizations rise and fall, but when they come back, they come back stronger. And that's how we have growth and advancement. But by virtue of Superman and others in the superhero community always being there to sort of fight back the darkness, civilization doesn't have that opportunity to rise and fall and come back stronger. And on top of that, the darkness is pushed back and the darkness then has the opportunity to get stronger such that eventually it will come back and be so strong that no one will be able to withstand it. And so we have a couple of issues during the storyline where we get this look at the future of the DC universe if Superman doesn't, doesn't step back. Uh, and we see that it's you know this apocalyptic future and, and everyone dies out. So this really causes Superman to to call it, you know, to really reflect on what his role in the world should be. And I know, you know, this is not the only story to to deal with that. And I was reading reviews of Camelot Falls and I'm summarizing, but that was a little bit of the spirit of some of the reviews that I was reading was that this kind of wasn't necessarily breaking new ground, I suppose, but I really enjoyed uh, the reflection that it prompted in Clark and the way it played out. And and again, to what we were saying before, I really think reading the story in one chunk really helped kind of tie it all together. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, in fact, I, as I was reading it, because I was doing it digitally, I didn't want to hunt through my boxes because um, that's a whole thing. But uh, as I was reading it this time, I couldn't help but think that, yeah, I can see how some people might label the aims of Camelot Falls as perhaps a bit derivative, especially if you're very familiar with Superman stories. But the creative team makes such a key difference here um, because Busick is very poetic in the way that he writes. And I feel like he is extraordinarily effective at cutting to the emotional quick of um, of the way that certain characters are feeling and what is justifying them to act in stories. And he's also a huge comic book fan. So um, one of the things that I really appreciate about creators like Busick or a creator like Jeff Johns, for instance, is that they see continuity as a strength. There are these other characters that you can pull from, potentially from other eras of the publication timeline, to try and, uh, and maybe give a new perspective on your title character. And by pulling in Arian from uh, from he made his first appearance in the early 80s, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, you are getting a little bit of a different flavor, but you're also getting the Busick writing and you're getting the writing from someone who seems concerned with having Superman justify his own existence to himself and to the people who uh, who are most close to him. So I find that component of this story uh, to be really engaging, but also is Carlos Pacheco. My God. Um, they have collaborated quite a few times. In fact, I think they're both collaborating together on an independent book at the moment that they both had to step away from because they both have some health problems, unfortunately. But this the the partnership between Busick and Pacheco is clearly a powerful one. Like they're very much in sync. And the pencils in this story are just phenomenal. They're so clean. The lines are so very strong. And uh, it's just like definitive Superman uh, in terms of like poster worthy images and a lot of the splash pages. Um, the coloring, it, it, I think it shifts to uh, to Alex Sinclair and some of the later ones. And I like his coloring with Pacheco's pencils a little bit less. Um can't remember the original colorist who I like more for some reason at the moment, but um, the vibrancy 
I think can be an important thing to have when you draw Superman and uh, they really lean into that. But then you also have characters like the prankster coming in randomly. And of course he would be random when he comes in. Uh, There's just a lot of stuff to like here. And it's a story that feels like it is steeped not only in recent developments in the DC universe for the time, but it also feels extended from uh, Superman's lineage. And I think that's part of what I enjoy the most about this story. Yes. And to that, to that last point, you know, I read this largely in a vacuum now. And yes, while I could see certain threads from what was going on at the time and, you know, about halfway through Camelot Falls, Chris Kent shows up right from the last son storyline that, that uh, Johns and Donna were doing. So you definitely, you know, have those ties to, to what was going on in, in the other books, but it, it, it read great on its own. So I, I think there's a timelessness to it as well, uh, which I, and I hope that people, you know, I don't know, discover it or rediscover it. I don't, I don't know how often it's necessarily talked about, although as far as the art, I see that that cover, and I forget which issue number it is, but the one of Superman sitting in space with his hand in his chin as he's yeah. pondering, you see the that thinker. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's beautiful. Um, he, so Pacheco is a guy that I uh, have taken a particular interest in, mostly in his mainstream comics work. I haven't really read a lot of his independence, but he also collaborated with Rick Remender uh, in, I think it was 2013 on Captain America. Um, and his pencils for cap are equally as impeccable. Uh, he just has such like, even a story like that, Captain America was in a bit of a different costume during that time. So it wasn't like the classic look necessarily, but it still looked and felt classic because he has such care and attention in the pencils. That's just my perception anyway. Uh, and seeing him, um, really bring his full skill to bear on a character like Superman there, for some reason, I think it was in the very first issue. And I remember feeling this way at the time that issue came out. There's just a shot of Superman flying in. Um, uh, from, it's like very high up in the air and he's flying into a, a panel from the side. And I don't know why it sticks with me even now, but it's just, uh, you see Superman's boots and his cape fluttering from the flying and there's something about that quality that just felt really like realistic to me like what what does it look like if someone is flying into into the earth you know and i think it's just the sense of dimension that pacheco adds to it you know he just he brings a weird sense of realism to the fantasy in those instances and it's panels like that rather innocuous panels by all by or at least by most measures but it's stuff like that that just really dials me into the escapist component and really lets me live in that world ever so briefly. And, uh, you know, he's a creator that I can't say enough about. I think that he's just excellent. I'm sure you have read it given what a fan you are, but JLA, JSA, Virtue and Vice. Oh yes, 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 of course. That's one that for all of the, the various prunings of my collection that I've done over the years, that's one that, that always stays. It's the JLA, JSA, Virtue and Vice. Pacheco drew it, written by Jeff Johns and uh, David Goyer. This was during the time of their JSA series. And it's not in print as far as I know. I think it might be included in one of those JSA omnibus the editions. omnibus volumes, yeah, I think so. Uh, but, it, but it's great. And the art is gorgeous. Uh, but that's a story that uh, is, is a favorite of mine as well. Yeah, I, I love his yeah. stuff. And I think it, it really suits uh, Superman perfectly. I, I think, you know, when I, in reading this storyline, 
and and to that criticism uh, about you know some of the questions being derivative of stories that we've read before, I think that the way it was presented felt more nuanced than than maybe other instances. You know, kind of what I laid out before this idea of of civilizations, and, and it just felt like it was fleshed out a little bit more. It wasn't just hey, you're here, you're holding people back. It felt like it kind of got at some larger ideas about history and society and and it gave a little bit more a little more weight to this argument and i also the thing that really i think just put it over the top for me was what allows superman to finally come to a resolution about this he's out in space he's pondering he's you know yeah, a, little, a little bit of a crossroads but he comes back to earth right and there's that little girl who's playing on the balcony and she starts to fall and he catches her and very shortly thereafter, he has the confrontation with with Arion, and and he talks about how, yeah, maybe my presence here is having this effect. Maybe we will get to this future that you've shown me. But when someone's in trouble, I can't not help them. And I I think you know going back to what you were saying before about what Superman represents and what he means to us. I think what really resonated about that with with me was that. I think that's kind of how I I try to go about my my day to day is trying to be a person of action and trying to focus on the small controllable things. That's something that has been very important to me because I you know it's it's great that these days you know there's a lot more talk about mental health and and all of that and that's great. And I you know I see people post and I I, I see how easy it can be to get to like to get stuck. And the thing that I, I guess I've always tried to keep in mind and that I think has served me well is just, again, focusing on just those small, just small controllable things. And, you know, you, you, you build from there. Like one step, I'm a big Rocky fan, so one step at a time, one punch at a time, one round at a time. And that's like a personal philosophy. And so kind of seeing a version of that in the story and, and seeing how that kind of unlocked this problem for him. It's like regardless of what the bigger picture might be that I can't control I can control in this instance when someone needs help. I'm not going to turn my back on them. And that's enough of an answer for me. I really liked that piece of it. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like focus is a recurring theme across this story. Um, the moment that you bring up, I mean, w- one of the things that I like to do, particularly for my uh, show, The Comic Binge, when I read something digitally, is that I always uh, take screenshots for pages or panels that stick out to me. Um, because then it just helps me to refer back to them later. And uh, that whole page where he's talking about saving Esperanza Luisa Sanchez, uh, it, it just it speaks to the core. And you're absolutely right. I mean, and I'm sure that you've gotten in the, the, this conversation just as much, if not potentially more than I have about, well, what do you see in Superman? You know, like he's he's such a boring character. And it's like, no. The thing that you just mentioned about controlling what you can is pivotal to understanding what makes him tick. And the thing with Superman is that he's so capable that he can just do a lot more than anyone else can. So he takes on a higher degree of responsibility. And it's, I think it's, uh, it's one of the things that we probably agree on a lot when it comes to Superman is just like the backward extrapolation of how you apply those lessons in your own life. Uh, it's really important to be able to focus on what you can control 
especially now. There's so many uh, competing components for anybody's attention at any given time. The world is basically a cacophony. And, um, you know, focusing on what you can do right in front of you is really pivotal for, um, for just managing your own mental health. And with Superman, he's able to do a lot more, but he also has to face a lot of those similar problems because the world for him is quite literally a cacophony, right? I mean, he can see everything, he can hear everything. And it's just over the course of his life that he's been able to hone himself so that he has the ability to focus through all of the noise. Um, but seeing how he is able to articulate to someone who does not understand his philosophy about how he gets through every day and how just the desire to help is what gets him from point A to point B. Uh, it was a deeply emotional reading experience for me this time. I can't remember how I felt the first time I read it, but I'd be surprised if I felt very differently about it. But um, no, I loved that page. And it just does speak to the strength of Superman as a character, as a concept, and as Kurt Busiek sees him in the story. You brought up the the criticisms too. I mean, if I were to think about how this struck people at the time, um, I guess there is a chance, and I haven't gone back to read like review contemporary reviews of the time, but um, Busick might, in in certain respects, get a little long winded at times. It doesn't bother me. Like, I mean, if I can read a Kevin Smith comic with a word balloon that takes up half the page, I'm probably not going to be all that worried about what Kurt Busick is doing. Um, but sometimes he does take a little bit to get going, but. He makes every word count. I guess that's what I appreciate about it. Yes. So a couple of things. Um, number one, I know I know people are very split on the Snyder movies. They always seem to come up in conversation. But you know, one of my favorite moments in Man of Steel is when he's a kid and he's struggling to to figure out how to use his powers and he's overwhelmed. And you know, Martha comes and gives him the advice of you know he says the world's too big. She's like, make it small. You know, just this idea of like really focusing in. Uh, you know, again, just, you know, seeing those, those connection points. But I think that, again, as far as this idea of, of, you know, some of these criticisms, I can, you know, I can overlook a lot because Busick imbues the character with so much humanity. And that was one of the other big things that I was really struck by reading this. I love, love, love his take on, on Clark and Superman. He feels more real here to me than in a lot of other stories and it's little things and even going back to that up up and away storyline that came before this now that was co-written by johns and, and Busick, but i'm i would put money on this moment being from Busick, and it's a teeny tiny thing but uh this is you know the period where clark's been powerless for the whole you know one year later uh, uh duration and uh you know, there's a moment where he talks about like, oh, I got to stop by the video store and pick up the latest box set. You know, I miss so much TV being Superman. Just again, a tiny little thing, but it's like, yeah, I could see that. And and in this one, you know, there's that, that moment where he's uh, on the plane and he's, you know, reading a novel, right? right? Yeah. And he's like, oh, there's a central conceit that the author doesn't really sell, but you know, like little, little tiny things like that. It just, or even when, 
uh, you know, he and Lois are talking about, uh, you know, that woman, Callie, who he had, you know, potentially a romantic past with. And, you know, you know, they're kind of discussing that just these little moments where he just feels like a person, like a fleshed out person. Uh, I, I love that so much. And so, you know, I can get past, you know, some long windedness or anything like that because I, I can buy into this take on the character and I'm along for the ride. I just, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that you bring that up because, um, you know, I started reading this because the collected edition, I went back and, and referenced the collected editions to make sure that I was reading the right issues at the time. And first collected edition starts at 654, which is like literally a month after up, up and away ends. And that issue in particular, in terms of the humanity, I think is critical um, because not only is he just like struggling against the weight of time to be able to celebrate this anniversary that they don't reveal what it is until the end of the of the story, but he also has to juggle all of his other responsibilities in addition to being Superman. And I love the the controlled chaos of that issue because like he's doing what he can to to listen to a boring city council meeting. And he's taking notes in his head while he's being held underwater by a supervillain. And, uh, and uh, he's, he's, I wish I could get an interview with this, uh, this police staffer, but I'll I'll just have to to push forward and and do what I can later. And he doesn't end up uh, finishing all the stories that he needs to, but then you have his wife come in. And um, I didn't realize it at the time that the new 52 started. But after I read Superman number one from the new 52, and I knew well in advance that they had dissolved the marriage, um, but reading that first issue gave me an incredible sense of loss for this relationship. And that's groundwork that Busick might be responsible for because the marriage is such an, it's depicted so well in this story in particular, and really across Busick's entire run. And, um, you know, Busick helped to, or I think he basically did write a weekly series with the three primary characters in DC. Um, And I'll mention that part in a minute, because I think that there is another good human Clark moment in there. But um, the way that the marriage between Clark and Lois is written as just such a, an equal partnership between the two of them that still has this undercurrent of love and understanding for each other's circumstances is something that I so appreciate um, because that's, that did contribute again to a sense of loss in the new 52s. Like, did we really have to leave that behind? And thankfully, you know, several years later, they decided to, to course correct a bit, but I just love the way that their relationship is written here. And I think that adds uh to the the human component that you describe because it is a recognizable relationship and marriage. And I just, I appreciate that immensely. I, I agree completely. Let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll continue along this track. We'll be right back. This episode made possible by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam is moving to the South Jersey area and looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for their new local comic shop, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee 
uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. All Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit AllYeahComics.com and follow All Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Aw, yeah. And we're back. Yeah, I am totally with you on on everything that you laid out with respect to that that issue and the relationship between Lois and Clark that we get in the story. I think if I had to give someone one issue from Camelot Falls, it would probably be that one. Sure. Because I love exactly what you laid out. I mean, him just trying to balance these two sides and ultimately not being able to, but having his wife, you know, pick up the slack and help him out that it was such a, that, that really struck me as well. And I think that's something that, you know, if, if I had, I guess I did read that issue back in the, back in the day before I was in a relationship, before I was married, I don't know that that would have resonated with me as much as it does now as a husband. And it's like, yeah, like sometimes sure. you really, you need, you need your partner's help like that. And especially in the case of Superman, he's there for everyone, but like, who's there for him? And, and there she is. Now, I will say real quick on the note of the New 52, I did an episode uh, a, a little while ago. I, I made peace with the New 52. I came around on a lot of it. But at the time, <laughs> I was really not a fan. And, and even looking back, I can appreciate it as a moment in time where they're not together. But yeah, my, my default, my preference is always to, to have that relationship. And, and I think this is a, a perfect story that encapsulates why and, and what that offers. And there are other moments too, you know, certainly the, the Lois and Clark of it all is, is very powerful, but there's a, a little Jimmy moment that, ah, oh, really got me 
when uh, Perry, Clark, Lois, and Jimmy, right, they're having lunch and they're talking about this question because they've seen this future laid out by, by Ariane about this apocalyptic uh, destiny that awaits them and they're debating what Superman's role should be. And Perry's, you know, he's a, a little, coming down a little hard on, on Superman, but not Jimmy. And later on, as, as Clark is reflecting on this, he's like, yeah, Jimmy didn't think that, not Jimmy. Never Jimmy. That's what he says. Never Jimmy. Like Jimmy, never, never doubt. Never, uh, you know, never, never, uh, you know, kind of doubt him in that way. It was a great moment. I really love that. Lives up to the title of Superman's pal. That's his know, buddy in every sense of the word. No, I totally agree with you. And um, I also appreciate too, though, that Superman has the patience and the wherewithal to approach any topic as objectively as possible, even if the topic is himself, you know, because he's confronted with this idea that maybe I am contributing to some of this and it comes from Perry White. I mean, if you had to try and list the, um, granted Superman is a guy who respects a lot of people, but Perry White is probably near the top of the list, like maybe right below his parents, as far as we know. So, I appreciated that Busick used Perry to introduce the idea that maybe what Ariane was saying had a degree of merit to it um, because naturally his reporter's instinct, Superman's reporter's instinct is going to run down the facts of a situation. And, you know, he's going to balance that with his own perspective because how could you not? When the, pers- when, when the subject is you, I mean, you have to, balance your own thoughts along with objectivity. And it's one of the things that I think tends to get lost when people talk generally about Superman is that, you know, his position as a reporter is one that forces him to think objectively about the world around him. And when the situation calls for it to think about himself as objectively as possible. Um, And uh, so I, I just, I appreciated that issue both for seeing Superman's pal in full action, but also for what Perry and Lois were adding to that conversation too. I feel like more of that conversation in terms of DC comics is reserved for Batman, but it really doesn't need to be, you know, because Superman uh, can potentially have a conversation related to that topic on a much larger scale than Batman can. So leaning into that for dramatic purposes, I think is a great move to take for a story. Yes. I, I mean, I think there there's a maturity to this story in terms of the story itself, but also Clark's a- approach to it, right? And and trying to come to terms with what's been presented to him. And yeah, I think that scene with the, the Daily Planet staff is a great example. And even in terms of him seeking out Zatanna's help as well, right? To try to get a little bit more background or context. He'll, he'll also later have a conversation with the Phantom Stranger, right? About like, is is this actually going to happen? Is it is it the future? Is it a future? But just the way that he he went about it, I, I think we could have gotten an, an easier, less nuanced version of this story where it's just kind of like this thing that we're building toward and he's resisting it. I think the way that, that Busick structured it really did allow for, for that reflection, for that meditation on the character. And I, I think that's why the story works, you know, to the extent that it does. I'll also say my audience might be surprised that I, that I enjoyed a story this much that has to deal with magic and the supernatural. I've said many times, those are typically not the Superman stories I gravitate toward, just the personal preference. But here it worked, which I I think that's probably the, the biggest and best compliment I can pay this story is that for someone who doesn't really like 
the Superman stories dealing with magic, sorcery, the supernatural. I really still liked this. So I think that says a lot about what, what was going on there. Well, also, too, I mean, Superman himself agreed with you in this story when he was talking to Zatanna, right? He's like, magic's not my thing. Can you just <laughs> fill me in, please? Because it's not something that I pay attention to all that much, which I was kind of surprised to see that he said that just because, you know, he's got two very well-documented weaknesses, right? And one of them is very broad and it's magic. But um, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, in general, sword and sorcery really isn't my thing all that much. You know, I, I'm, I'm much more likely to gravitate toward uh, a Superman story I've seen or read a thousand times versus, I don't know, Game of Thrones. I was just I was never really into those things very much. And Game of Thrones just decided to, it built up heroes and then just killed them all. And I tend to prefer stories with strong heroes in them. What a shock. But uh, but no, I mean, I, the, the mature tone... I think you're absolutely right about because Busick approaches the material in a, a a learned way. He's clearly a guy who has a deep understanding of, of the mythology of the character and of the medium, frankly, but he's also someone who is well-read in the medium enough that pulling in a, a character like Ariane or, or even, you know, jumping back into history to serve as the basis for Kyber and melding like magic and mythology together to create this rather potent and unique threat. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that a lot of these characters really haven't appeared at all since this moment. And specifically, like, Ariane, I think, has appeared through through this point and then up through, like, Rebirth and even recently. But uh, Kyber, we haven't seen since this point. Uh, and Subject 17, we haven't seen since this point either. So um, this is a pretty unique story. And like you said, it's probably not on a lot of people's radars and they can probably uh, grab a lot on eBay of all of these issues for reasonably cheap if they wanted to. So it's certainly worthy of revisiting just because of the acumen on display in the writing. And as we discussed already too, the artwork. Well, uh, you know, again, as far as it not being on people's radar, I'll, I'll be honest, I initially, I wasn't sure if I would do this episode because you know in terms of what i put out I, I try not to deal with such deep cuts not that this is even a deep cut per se but you know stuff that people are more aware of or have access to or have read or watched and oh you know ultimately i said i just think this is worthy of it it's a strong story and maybe this will turn a few people onto it or or you know maybe prompt a reread you know if they haven't been to it in a while so i'm, I'm glad that we're doing this and you mentioned subject 17 so I know we've been talking about these these larger ideas about Superman's role in the world, but as far as some of the more nuts and bolts of the story, the Subject 17 piece of it, uh, to me, was really fascinating, right? So this, so we're in Kazakhstan, and uh, Clark is uh, requested by this scientist of the unexplained, essentially, uh, Callie, who we find out he had uh, you know, a past with while he was traveling the world um, after he left Smallville. And so Subject 17 is just really, uh, you know, a, a flip on the Superman origin story, right? This alien who came to Earth and was born as his, as his parents were dying, but rather than being taken in by a kindly couple, is subjected to, you know, horrendous, countless experiments and torture over years uh, and ultimately breaks out and, you know, Superman has to, to fight him. And that's ultimately then when Ariane intervenes, but Subject 17 comes back later and, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that piece of it. Again, confronting Superman with, 
you know, that mirror image of, of, you know, what, what could have been. And, and I think what kind of took that piece of the story to the next level for me was when Subject 17 came back and after he had spent time in the world and he had learned and he had learned the language and, you know, basically offers Superman this deal, right? Like if you, you know, don't save these people, I'll, I'll stand down. And it's like, and, you know, Superman's response is like, well, this, that's a position I, I can't be in. Like I could never accept that. Again, sort of going back to these like fundamentals of who the character is. Uh, what what was your take on all the the subject seventeen of it all? I I found the poetry appropriate considering his origin sort of intersecting with the fundamentals of Superman's origin as we understand him, and also too honestly I was reminded of uh, we go from subject seventeen to subject one. It seems like a lot of uh, the groundwork that is laid in terms of the particulars of subject seventeen were kind of applied to Kal-El himself by the time Flashpoint rolled around. Um, so, you know, the the just putting that together after the fact, I found to be pretty interesting. But it also, I think, illustrates that there is quite a degree of merit here. In this story, having Superman, uh, or giving Superman, I should say, the opportunity to examine what his life would be, because we see this happen in Elseworlds or in Flashpoint, for instance, but Superman himself can't really... Uh, review those circumstances because he's involved in them. You know, he's not an objective observer, but with subject 17, he is. So even if that's a, a note that might ring familiar for Superman fans, the unique component is giving Superman himself the opportunity to react and respond to it. And um, I love how even in the middle of that fight, as uh, Callie is basically talking through the origin of subject 17 while superman is embroiled in battle with him it's just compassion that washes over him you know he he needs to handle the situation and he probably needs to do it um in a definitively and decisively physical way but um at the end of the day subject 17 is a victim and even if his perspective has been perverted and superman has to stop him because he's subject 17 is so determined to cause mass destruction and death. Uh, the tragedy of his origin story is something that I appreciated that Busick put at the front of Superman's mind while he was dealing with him up through to the last moment they interact with each other. So uh, I just thought like, I can see how some people might see it as a detour uh, from the main story. It kind of is, but sometimes detours take you to some interesting places. And um, I thought that it was more than fair game in the context of everything else that he was dealing with. Yeah. And especially since in this story, we're building towards a look at a potential future. I think, right. Uh, a conflict that causes him to reflect on his beginnings is, is perfectly appropriate. So yeah, I was, I was definitely on board with that. And we mentioned Callie. We also have another ex. Well, not that Callie was necessarily an ex, but Lana Lang this story positions her as the new CEO of LexCorp. So this is after the whole uh, ruin business from the Greg Rucka uh, Adventures of Superman run. And uh, she and Pete have gotten divorced and she's now taking over uh, LexCorp. I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, in talking about Superman and Lois uh, at the beginning of this year on the podcast, I talked about how I feel like that show has, has given us the best treatment of Lana Lang. And I, I still ultimately stand by that, but there have been other instances when I did my new 52 episode uh, and, and now here, uh, I think these stories uh, do 
do go a, a, a good bit of the way towards making up for, I think, some of the uh, the, the weaker, you know, characterization of Lana, uh, you know, during the Triangle era. As much as I love that period, but I don't think it did the character a ton of favors. No, I, I, I'm totally inclined to agree with you. I mean, um, when it comes to the New 52 stuff, the use of Lana was far better than I expected it to be. And I also appreciated how she ended up being a really important conduit to the the stuff that they would do with Superman and Rebirth. Um, I actually just located the um, the Tomasi Gleason omnibus. Like I had been looking for it. I guess it had fallen out of print, but I was determined and I found it and I, I brought it home and I've been revisiting those stories. And yeah, at the very beginning, um, you know, Lana is an important player and she's also an important player in like final days of Superman that leads up to it. But, um, you know, their relationship is built on a mutual respect that you don't often see. Um, and I think the the lens of the new 52 allowed them to take it in that kind of a direction. However, what you see from Lana here, where all of that uh, history is intact regarding their romantic entanglements and, and their history together growing up in Smallville, I think the thing that sticks out to me the most about Lana who um, when she's used well during this era of DC in particular is that there's a little bit of a mournful quality to her um, where Clark is the one that got away. I mean, it's kind of like a more serious version of Lana's characterization in Superman three, um, which is, is, it's a totally fair game. As far as I'm concerned, having her ascend to a, a senior position in LexCorp for the the dramatic purposes that are at play here, uh, it does add an interesting wrinkle to everything. Especially like if you were reading the books around this time, and um, you know you saw that she was the second lady of the United States for a while there. Uh, there is a lot of history that's wrapped up into it. But Busick, I appreciate how he acknowledges it and then he moves on to what he needs to do in his story. He doesn't let previous continuity bog down what he's trying to do when, when it comes to his narrative goals and aims. Um, but she's an important player here. And I like the idea, at least at the during this point in time that LexCorp has the potential to be used uh, in Superman's corner, as opposed to being pointed at him uh, by its typical founder and CEO. Right. Um but I, uh, the their first interaction where they talk and and um, Lana explains that she's dropped the Ross from her name, um, and how it's starting to become clear that this could be maybe potentially a force for good in Metropolis. Uh, it, there was a lot of good potential there, but there is something about that relationship that has a, a bit of a mournful, um, or I guess maybe melancholy quality that uh is played very straight and appropriately and um it it just for me anyway in the reading experience for camelot falls it provides a great contrast to the relationship that he has now with his wife you know um so i just it's it's a deft use of lana here and she's not a main focus nor should she be but um using her as a way to put LexCorp on the board for the events of the story. I thought was really cool. Yes. I, yeah, I think, it, I think it worked. Uh, it worked very well. We still, of course, have to get to the black ring. One, one other thing though, that I wanted to single out about Camelot Falls 
the chapter where Arion puts Superman under a spell and the government case squad comes in, right? This, this right. branch of the military that's been trained and armed to intervene. It costs a million dollars a second, they say, every time they're out in the field. But any time that it seems like Superman has been compromised, brainwashing, spell, clone, whatever it might be, they're deployed. So they come in. What what I love about this issue is that it the way it builds and the way it sh- it really helps you feel the frustration that Superman is experiencing, right? Because he is able to overcome this spell relatively quickly because of the training that he's undergone. He talks about, you know, Martian Manhunter gave him exercises to do if he's ever in a situation like that. So he's he's kind of getting past it on his own when the K-Squad intervenes. Prankster, who you mentioned before, has to get his licks in there, giant, you know, electrified pie in his face. <laughs> then, as Superman is trying to go after the bad guy, the JLA and JSA show up, right? To be like, oh, we, we, we can help both yeah. of them. And there's this moment where Clark like just really lets it out. He's like, I'm fine. And you just, you feel the frustration there. I, that was one of my favorite issues. And it, and it led to a great moment in, in one of the later issues, I believe, where, uh, again, as he's doing all this reflecting on, on his place in the world, and I think this is in one of the final chapters where he's thinking to himself, the eyes of a planet. This is when, you know, towards the end of the story, Lana is using those, uh, those, those special cameras that LexCorp has developed to track Superman in, in this battle in order to show the marketability of, uh, or the viability of these, of these cameras. Because uh, again, LexCorp, very dire financial straits at the moment. <laughs> but Clark grasping thinks, at anything that'll work in the market, yeah. Exactly. So, but Clark thinks to himself, the eyes of a planet watching their alien champion who they count on when they're not scared of him. And I, I just, I love that moment because it's like, yeah, it's as, you know, Clark's wrestling with all of this within himself, but he's also dealing with what, what the people think of him and being faced with the reality of, oh, there's this whole squad that's been designed without my knowing, right? For instances like this, I don't know, it just pulls a lot into focus, but I love that issue for, for the way it really, like it, I don't know, it really made you empathize with the character. Like I felt his frustration in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a weird kind of um, amplification of what he went through in the first issue uh, where he's just trying to stay on top of things. But this time he's having to ward off uh, mental manipulation and all of these just like uh, cascading physical uh, problems that he's got to just work his way through, even among his friends. Um, This one in particular did stick out to me, too, just because. I have revisited sacrifice very recently. So, um, you know, the manipulation at the hands of Maxwell Lord, that's a heart stopping moment in the lead up to infinite crisis. And of course it culminates in, um, wonder woman potentially taking things probably a step too far. Although, you know, it's a little obfuscated as stories pre infinite crisis were want to do, but, um, this instance and his ability to ward off the manipulation from Ariane was in direct response to what Maxwell Lord did to him. So again, it's a good use of the continuity of the recent continuity uh, while also uh, giving service to a lot of these other character moments that we've seen over the course of the entire story. I, uh, I, I love the, the moment that you mentioned where the lettering just makes it clear that it's like an ear splitting. I'm fine. Like he's, he's really pushing it forward 
through those Kryptonian lungs to make sure that everybody can hear him. Uh, Not too much, though. He doesn't want to split their eardrums, but they definitely are going to hear him. And um, uh, I I liked that Hal Jordan was kind of the point person there, because even if it wasn't directly mentioned, um, I feel like Hal has a unique insight into being misunderstood. So it seemed like it was appropriate for him to consume the information from Superman and be like, oh, okay, all right, you're fine. That's good. I, I trust you. Um, it's just one of the other strengths of reading, you know, superhero comics on an ongoing scale, you get these things. And I, I feel like Busick might've done that on purpose. I don't know for sure, of course, but it felt right in the moment, but, um, yeah, that frustration, it was like a whole other side of the spectrum considering all of the, uh, the shenanigans, let's say that he had to deal with back in issue 654. I, uh, I love that moment too. And, and as far as the hell of it all. You know, it cuts both ways. I agree. You know, it makes, on the one hand, it makes a lot of sense for him to be the one because he's been through this experience. But on the other hand, I feel like, though it's not stated, but I feel like that also feeds into Clark's frustration because I, you have to imagine, there's like a tiny part of him that looks at Hal at the forefront and it's like, really? <laughs> you? <laughs> of all people? <laughs> Don't you get it? Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, the, the other thing about that issue that again, like just really, really ties into the, the humanity and the relatability of the character. At the end of the story, Clark tracks down Prankster, right? And he talks about how, like, I just needed a win. Now, look, he would want to bring Prankster to justice anyway. But really in this context, it's like all of these debacles over the course of, of that afternoon. And it's like he just needed, he needed a win, so I, again, I, I really, uh, you know, that, that, that issue was another highlight for sure. Yeah, most definitely. No, I really appreciated, uh, everything that was at play here. And it really just, it's, it serves as a bit of a microcosm, uh, in terms of the strength of the characterizations that Busick brings to bear over the course of his writing. Uh, and of course, you know, the layouts are impeccable. The action is so clearly defined and rendered in this story. Um, and you know, it's a pretty important part of a comic book reading experience, of course, but um, yeah, like like you mentioned before, this is likely these days an easy one to overlook. That would be a mistake. I mean, Kurt Busiek is a is a creator with a, a well deserved, impeccable reputation, and him um, spending pretty sizable chunk of his time on Superman, uh, it's just a, another feather in the character's cap. So it's certainly worthy of revisiting if uh, if someone has not. Uh, well, revisiting if you've read it before or coming to for the first time uh, if you've never read it before. I, I, I co-sign on that. I mean, here's the thing. I know everyone always goes to Superman's secret identity and, and deservedly so. It's a beautiful sure. story. It's a favorite of mine. I'm, I'm long overdue for a revisitation of that. We'll get there eventually. But if you enjoyed that and you're looking for, you know, for, for more from Kurt Busiek, I, I would certainly recommend Camelot Falls. So as we hit the hour mark here, let us turn our attention to the Black Ring. And actually, a good segue, I suppose, talking about Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, because this spins right out of the Blackest Night event, which I read, but I don't really have the strongest or most positive memories of. I mean, my experience with the Jeff Johns Green Lantern era, I loved, loved the beginning of it. I loved Rebirth. I loved the way he brought Hal back. Uh, I really enjoyed the Secret Origin arc. I liked a lot of Sinestro Core War. It kind of lost me when we got into 
while it's, and this is really its own conversation, but as much as I love the idea of the entire spectrum and the different rings and the different core and, and all of that, it got a little bit much for me at a certain point. And probably around the time of Blackest Night, I kind of was checking out a little bit, but in any event, uh, you know, that's sort of our jumping off point here, right? Lex's taste of the power of, of the orange <laughs> lantern ring and has been part of this, this Blackest Night event and now is seeking out the power of the black ring, right? And he's identified these spheres across the earth and in outer space. And he and his team, including a robotic android Lois Lane, which is fascinating, are scouring the globe uh, to track these down and are using a device that changes the nature of the power. And, and once he's completed this task with all of the spheres, in theory, this will unlock the power of, of the Black Lantern ring uh, or the, just the Black Lantern. So what was your take on on this? And, and I guess, how did it um, hold up from uh, prior readings? Well, I mean, I I was so dialed in to Blackest Night as it was coming out. I mean, um, I went to, I only went to San Diego Comic-Con two years. It was 2008 and 2009. So I went for the summer of Final Crisis and I went for the summer of Blackest Night. Um, so it was impossible for me to escape the hype. I was also a retailer at this time. So, um, you know, by necessity, I had to keep up with all of the stories as they were coming out, but it wasn't much of a necessity. I, um, I was very much bought into what Johns was doing on Green Lantern. And, you know, it wasn't just because of Green Lantern. I think the thing that I liked about Jeff Johns driving the ship at DC for as long as he did is that he had the license to weave in through a bunch of different characters all at once so what he was doing by the time like sinestro core war rolled around for instance really did uh come out of what he did in infinite crisis superboy prime was uh, a really important character uh in both series and johns would use prime for years afterward up through what like a year ago or uh, two years ago thereabouts um so I thought that that was just a really well-defined villain. Um, but Blackest Night in particular, I just remember feeling like it was relentless, you know, like it just, it was so, it was weirdly like for a story about the emotional spectrum, I remember feeling drained, especially in the first like half, especially with some of the tie-ins like they did, uh, John's did a, um, an Adam Hawkman one shot with Ryan Sook that kind of, spilled out of a really really gruesome and sad moment out of the first issue of the main series um it was a little bit easier to not be as dialed in because for a big dc event superman wasn't really that involved in it and bruce wayne for most at least as far as most people knew was dead so this was a unique moment in terms of like a, a dc comics event series where the two uh, marquee characters were kind of off the board in another sense that makes it unique and uh, and kind of interesting to see how the story plays out. But um, all things considered, I appreciate blackest night a lot. Now it's not um, in terms of like the, the trilogy of John's events with green lantern. It's probably the one I've revisited the least compared to rebirth and Sinestro core war. But I probably like it a little bit more than you do. But uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to unpack that one at some point in the future. I, I will um, say, I mean, I'm not, especially after reading Black Ring, I'm not, I'm not totally unopposed to uh, revisiting it. And what's crazy, I was thinking about how long it's been. 
I remember specifically, this was my post-law school, po- post-bar exam reading project. So it was oh, geez. summer of 2012, which, you know, in, in retrospect, it's like, I don't know if that, if that was the right reading project for that time, especially when we got to the Blackest Night portion of it. I don't know. So that might have colored my perspective on, on all of it. So I, I would potentially be open to, uh, to giving that another shot. Yeah, I mean, it might be something that we end up doing on uh, on the comic binge. If we do, I'll let you know. Right on. Um, yeah, but uh, but either way, I mean, I think one of the things that Johns excels at is, in a weird way, his casting, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, you have these uh, emotional spectrum core. Uh, so if you are going to put recognizable DC characters to occupy those spaces, then who do you choose when it comes to greed? It's hard to find a a better subject than Lex Luthor. And with fear, it was hard to find a better subject than, uh, than Jonathan Crane. You know, it was like there, I, I was dialed into what he was doing with the quote unquote new guardians. I thought that that was an interesting idea. Um, I was surprised that I, I will say, I felt like Superman got snubbed on the hope side for Barry Allen, but that's fine. You know, I like Barry Allen. It's cool. And he was recently returned at that point. So maybe he could have used the limelight a little bit more, but um, the, what blackest night set up with Lex Luthor and what the core desire of his has always been, that's fertile territory for a a longer term story. And um, you know, I don't think that at the time the black ring started it was totally clear that we were in for a, a, a universal shakeup on the scale of the new 52. But in hindsight, I actually find it really fascinating that really the last major story of, uh, of, of pre-boot action comics was like a full year where Lex Luthor was the star of the book. Like just on concept, that's really interesting to me. And I think it's kind of a unique occurrence in terms of certainly superhero comics, but um, this was a lot of fun. Yes. I really enjoyed this one as well. I I can't say I've read a ton else by Paul Cornell, to be honest, but uh, I really loved his work here. And the the Pete Woods art was absolutely gorgeous. Those just clean lines. It, It told the story beautifully. Just want to jump back to Barry Allen for a quick second, not to dump on Barry Allen, but I remember reading the solicitations for flash rebirth. Number one, the first flash rebirth. And uh, it was like all heroes in the DC universe quake in the footsteps of Barry Allen or something to that effect. And I just remember thinking like, all right, like let's calm down a little bit. But I, you know, I, it was, it was his moment. It was his moment. I understand. But yeah, when we're talking about hope like yourself, I would gravitate more towards Superman. Anyway, yeah, I, I had I had a similar thought. Actually, both both similar thoughts that I love that Lex got the spotlight and that he had it for as long as he did. I wish we saw more like that. I mean, you know, it's tough on the Superman front these days. He doesn't have a ton of titles. It's not like Batman. It's, you know, <laughs> talk about solicitations. You're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It's still Batman section. So not as much real estate. But yeah, I love that. Lex had that opportunity. And I, I was thinking about that too. It's like, after this story, you have reign of the doomsdays and that's it. And then we're into new 52 territory. So yeah, there's something really interesting and cool and oddly fitting that Lex was like the last, the last big, uh, you know, spotlight before it all went away. 
Yeah, and it, you know, it's kind of weird to think about now, but DC was actually prone to doing this at, at the time where they took their longest running titles and they gave them to characters that uh, have not occupied them all that much or in the case of like Batwoman and Detective Comics had never occupied them before. Um, but I like that they took that swing because the concept of those stories, generally speaking, is very strong. I mean, when you have Greg Rucker writing detective comics, it's not irrelevant that Batman isn't there, but it's less of a factor if he's still going to be playing in Gotham City for all intents and purposes. It's a Greg Rucker Gotham City story. Yeah, let's see what that's like, especially if Bruce Wayne isn't around. Um, but in this instance, you know, Lex Luthor is a character who doesn't really get anything resembling an ongoing series at all and not that you know his time in action comics was going to be permanent far from it and i think everybody knew that going into it just superman was occupied so let's do something interesting with action and it did help to keep action comics in the upper tier of dc titles while this was coming out because lex Luthor is a fascinating guy you know i think that for, for my money he's one of the single most fascinating villains that dc has access to bar none um and it's because of how complicated he is and how extremely well informed his self-interest is uh and that comes through so well over the course of this story and then the way that and i don't want to get too far ahead but it was a nice way to celebrate 900 issues of action when we did get to that point and to make a natural transition back, even though it would just be a few months later before we were on to a new number one. But still, I appreciate and actually love the trajectory of this story. Um, and, you know, it's not deviating from the norm in an ongoing comic book series, especially the most time-honored comic book series in existence, uh, is a pretty unique occurrence, but it feels justified here. Absolutely. And you know, it's I'm again thinking about how these stories, you know, parallel each other. Just like we were talking about with respect to Camelot Falls, here too, I really enjoyed Black Ring despite not loving Blackest Night and not having reread it before this, and also knowing that all of this was gonna change anyway shortly thereafter with the new fifty two. Like it's still it holds up in and of itself. And that that's a testament to the story because not, not everything does. So the fact that you, know, you could kind of go to this now, so many years later, knowing what was to come and, and knowing what it came out of, and it, it still works uh, unto itself uh, is, is, is very cool. I love that Lex had the spotlight. I love that we get this, this tour through the DC universe, right? The Arkham issue with Joker and all the Vandal Savage stuff. It's, it's, it, it, you know, again, I guess in a similar way to Camelot Falls where yes, there is obviously an ongoing narrative and we're building towards something, but you do also get these these vignettes as well, and and you get some great insight into into this character and and what makes him tick. Yeah, and what uh, what gets him out of bed in the morning? I mean, what a what a surprise! It's the promise of acquiring more power, right? <laughs> I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's what he wants. But it also takes. It, it's kind of weird reading this next to Camelot Falls because we go from uh, Luther being firmly established in the the public's mind as a career criminal. And then this story starts and he's got control of his company again. There's a certain uh, symmetry or poetry to that as well, I think in certain respects, but um, either way, it's, it's interesting to see because he's kind of uh, he's kind of on a tear once he's back into power. 
at least to, to a sense of power that he's familiar with, but he has had a taste of something more. And uh, the tools that he uses to try and acquire this power at a higher degree. Uh, I mean, how did you feel when you saw, or at least when it became clear that he had built a facsimile of Lois to basically serve as his right hand? Because to me, it felt like a violation in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, that thought definitely crossed my mind. I mean, there's, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, what what role is she serving when he's out on his quest and, and in terms of questioning him, challenging him, offering another perspective? There's that piece of it. But then, you know, there's also the other side of what's going on behind closed doors. And and yes, I agree. I mean, there's definitely that that piece of it that is very gross and twisted, but also didn't feel, you know, felt on brand for Lex. Yeah, well, he's also had just had, especially in the modern age, like since Burn, this fixation on Lois. And it's not always necessarily romantic. I think there's just something about the fact that he understands that she is close to his enemy that makes him feel overridingly acquisitive. I don't really know how else to put it, but uh, there's something about this that feels like it's designed to dig at superman even though superman for all intents and purposes as far as we know has no idea that this is taking place but um it just it i think it adds to his pettiness you know and i think it it brings something to bear about the kind of person that he is that you know superman we we saw in the story that we read previously that he will struggle and it would it's nice to get a win once in a while you know it's always good to be able to go home and feel like you've got a sense of satisfaction but luther feels that all the time you know he never stops competing especially when it comes to superman i mean uh camelot falls also did a, a nice job of illustrating what luther's potential could be if he could just get his obsession out of the way um, but Luther also over the course of this feels a little frustrated because the focus of his ire is not in front of him and he can't really devote himself at the moment to getting Superman off the board until the end of the story, which goes the way that it goes. But, um, I just really liked what this, this entire arc contributes to the, the overall tapestry of Lex Luthor as a character, because you're right, the complexity of, uh, of of his repugnance, I guess, uh, knows no bounds. And I like that Paul Cornell chose to illustrate that in a variety of different ways, uh, up through and including even his youth, as we see. Oh, yeah, that's right. In that, uh, that action annual where you get a glimpse into his early days in Metropolis and this unexpected detour to Apocalypse. Uh, yeah, that one, that one was, was surprising. I don't think I had ever read that uh, back back in the day when I was originally reading Black Ring, but yeah, and it's, this was particularly interesting for me, having spent a number of episodes not too long ago looking at the evolution of Lex across time and media, because this really represents the culmination of all of the different versions that we've seen before. Right? He's the mad scientist and the businessman. He's been the disgraced criminal and now returned to prominence. He's in the business suit, but also his power suit. It's like really everything kind of coming together in this ultimate version of Lex. And 
I mean, I guess that would largely carry over into the new 52 and, and then, you know, later in Rebirth, of course, he has his heroic turn and, and all of that. But again, I think this, like, this really does represent a very interesting moment in time for the character. Yeah. And weirdly enough, I mean, I guess in one respect, and I already talked about how I admired that action comics stuck to a different uh, starring character for virtually a full calendar year. And I, I stand by that, of course, but um, considering the timing of the scheduling, uh, I can also understand the frustration of some people. In fact, I had a couple of customers in the shop at the time who felt like once they once we learned that the new 52 was coming, that the title was stolen from Superman to a degree. Like, was there um, a total editorial understanding uh, when Black Mirror, Black Mirror, when Black Ring started, Black Mirror, also another good story, but Black Ring, when it started, was there total editorial understanding that the new 52 would be coming? I don't know. Um, I kind of don't think so, but either way, I don't think that that makes this any less interesting of a story or any worthy of a story to read uh, just because the, the character study on display here, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a total culmination of everything that we've seen with Luther up until this point. And it does serve as at least eventually as a nice, um, I guess, rededication to his place as Superman's ultimate enemy and their confrontation at the end of this story is one of the best Superman Luther confrontations I've probably ever read. So I think that this was definitely a worthy exercise. And weirdly enough, I mentioned Black Mirror. Detective was being led by Dick Grayson at this time. So this was happening in both action and detective, which is weird to think about. It's true. I think and I, and I what's especially remarkable, I guess, is that not only was was Lex the the starring character but like you said i mean superman's off the board it's not like lex is driving the action but he's also going up against superman every other issue superman's really out of it until until the very end so i, I give them credit for re like really giving lex the spotlight there are i mean a ton of great moments that show not just tell but show <laughs> a lot about the character i think it's in that first issue right where one of his underlings is is telling him no uh, about one of the experiments that he's conducting about how much power to you know to to use and and Lex fires this guy who proceeds to attack Lex and of course he's restrained and removed and all of that and then Lex has him killed at the dinner table by an assassin because he made Lex feel helpless and Lex can't have that and that's I think that's you know one of the things that makes Lex so fascinating because there are so many moments where he can be charming. He he can take you, you know, you can sort of see his side in certain respects. He's, you know, so capable, so smart, always many steps ahead. There's a lot that can kind of draw you in, but then there are always those moments that show you the the utter lack of humanity of the character. And you know, I mean, that was certainly a, a clear one, but, uh, you know, right, right out of the gate, you know, kind of showing you who you're dealing with with this guy. Well, and the compulsion um about not wanting to feel helpless was even more heavily emphasized by the time he encounters death i mean he even says as much if i'm remembering correctly that i can't feel helpless um but that issue i think in particular even though you know at the time when we were getting ready to put our orders in because they had uh, announced that she was going to be a part of that issue several months in advance 
And I think there was a prevailing feeling among certain fans that it was just going to be kind of a gimmick. It didn't end up being that at all, at least not in my estimation. I mean, she death helped to provide a perspective on Luther that would be impossible to glean without her level of insight. And um, the way that he reacts and responds to the um, the confrontation with his own mortality, I think that that's a rather rich addition to, to the legacy of Lex Luthor as a character because he doesn't, even in the face of death, his, his arrogance does not back down and his pompousness even. Like she's trying to make him see the uselessness of, of components of the life that he's lived and has even recognized the the positive contributions that he either did or could have made uh, to the world over the course of his life. But his overriding self-interest is such that he can't even entertain the possibility of uh, a personal nirvana, you know, because he thinks that there's some kind of cost attached to it. Why does he think that? Because if he were in charge of the purse strings, there would be, you know, and he can't see beyond himself. I thought it was a really beautiful representation, actually, of what makes Lex Luthor such a, a complex villain at the end of the day and someone who is worthy uh, as a human being of being the arch enemy of the most powerful being in existence. Yes. I mean, that exchange I think was, was telling in so many ways where, you know, exactly like you said that, you know, when, when posed with this idea of, of, you know, uh, paradise, it's like, well, I'd spend forever looking for a catch. And then right. when he, when he gets, you know, to this, you know, final confrontation with death and he's like, fine, like send me where you're going to send me. I'll find something to win. It's like that. And that's the character. And that's, I'm going to, you know, we, we can unpack it more, but I just want to jump to the, the climax of the story here for a second, because it goes hand in hand with this death issue. I think of, of the absolutes that drive this character, the, the ego, the self-interest, the arrogance, again, what he articulates to death about rejecting the idea of paradise, about always finding something to win. And then even at the end of the story, you know, we can explain more about how we get there, but ultimately it comes down to, he has, ultimate power in his hands and all he has to do essentially is stop hating superman right he can't can't display negative emotion right if he can just let it go and we get to the point where superman clark is ple- like basically pleading with him he's like i'm sorry for everything like just <laughs> do the right thing and lex can't and that's why i love these stories together because you see the absolutes on, on both sides of the coin, right? Superman can't not save the little girl who's falling off the balcony. It might result in this dire apocalyptic future. He doesn't know. He can't control that. He can control whether or not he saves that little girl, that life in that moment. On the other side of the equation, you know, you have Lex. And even when he has everything that he claimed he always wanted, right? The ultimate power, the ability to save everyone, do everything he's always claimed, he's always promised, he can't get out of his own way. He can't not hate. And I think when you, again, when you put these stories together, it, it, they're, they show you so much about who these two guys are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a weird way, when I was revisiting Action 900, it struck me as sort of the antithesis to the way that all-star Superman ends um, because, you know, a story like that, that's self-contained 
has the license and the ability to make more f- uh, statements of finality relating to these characters that you don't really have in an ongoing environment. But that's not a bad thing. You know, um, it just adds another wrinkle to what makes these characters tick on an ongoing basis. And even when given absolute power, he can't set aside his pettiness at the end of the day. And um, I thought that it was uh, really well expressed, especially considering how the story jumps between a few different primary artists. And you have uh, moments from Superman's life uh, that were depicted many years ago and some that were only depicted a couple of years ago. And it takes you through the trajectory of um, really building up what makes Superman an exceptional human being. And, um, and Lex, when confronted with the concept of being inferior because of his own impulses, he just doesn't know what to do. And he freaks out. And uh, he, he makes what he, I'm sure he thinks is the only rational response uh, when confronted with that kind of information. And it's just a fascinating character study and a very extremely clear uh, declaration about who both of these guys are on the side of this conflict. Um, So I loved Action 900 just as it's a a celebration of Superman, but it's also just uh, it, it reinforces what makes the rivalry between Superman and Lex Luthor so timeless through a modern lens. And uh, at the end of the day, I think that's what I take away the most from it. I remember telling my boss, we got to up the orders on Action 900. Come on, this is, this is going to be a, a big mover. It's a big anniversary issue. And I was a little crestfallen when we did have a lot of copies left over, uh, at least after the first week. Over time, though, we got through them all because the word got out that this was a cool story. Not only did it have like uh, maybe some more attention-getting stories by people like David Goyer or, or Jeff Johns or Richard Donner, but the main story... I talked to a lot of people about like they didn't read any of black mirror before the finale. Uh, And this is only anecdotal of course, but I just remember having really good conversations with people who just bought that as a collector's item and ended up reading it and realized, Hey, this is cool. And I get Superman versus Lex Luthor now. Yeah. I love the way that that played out. And, And so, you know, when we, when we built to the climax of the story, we find out that once all of these rings or these spheres uh, are converted. Uh, they open this doorway to the Phantom Zone, essentially, and this this being that was born in the Phantom Zone and was feeding off of the Black Lantern energy emerges, and that's the power that Lex is able to control. Of course, along the way, we also find out that that Brainiac was pulling the strings, but not really because Lex Lex was ahead of Brainiac. I mean, there are a couple of points in the story where it seems like someone's finally gotten one over on Lex, and it's like, no, no, I planned for that. Even when the Phantom Zone being comes out, he's like, yeah, I anticipated that. I mean, at a certain point, <laughs> does that, I don't know, does that, does that totally track? Does it feel like, yep, that's the character of Lex? Or at a certain point, does it feel like, okay, like, he can't, <laughs> is he that good? <laughs> or no one is that obstinate either. I mean, I just remember being like totally floored at the concept that Bruce Wayne had the capacity to feel utter bliss. Um, and then Lex Luthor took that away from him, you know, it's just like, wow, that's saying something. A guy as tortured as that, who probably on his best day is a lot more tortured than someone like Lex Luthor is. Um, even his own selfishness could not abide, uh, letting anyone else feel that if it meant getting in the way of his core conflict. I I like what that says about Luthor's, uh, 
just obsessive obstinacy when confronted with Superman. If only Superman weren't around, he could save the world, but he has to kill Superman first. You're nuts, man. You're nuts. Like, just put it aside. I can't. Well, that's why Superman takes you down all the time. Exactly. I mentioning Batman. I, you know, one of my favorite issues is when uh, he goes to retrieve one of the spheres from Arkham Asylum and he has his big sit down with the Joker. And it's rare where a comic literally makes me laugh out loud. <laughs> but there's this amazing exchange where Joker says to, to Lex, like, oh, if I could just kill Batman, then I could save the world. And Lex has this beat where he's like, oh, Oh, like he realizes the Joker is roasting him. It was so funny to me. <laughs> yeah, same here. I mean, and it's totally something the Joker would do as well. I mean, and that's one of the things that I like about um, portrayals of their relationship in the comics, because I, who was it? I think it was um, Mark Wade who talked about uh, the idea that at the end of the day, every member of the Justice League wants the same thing. But if you put... Uh, like most of the major villains of the DC universe in the same room, they all want totally different things. But Joker is just such a creature of chaos that if he can dig it at anybody, then he's going to do it. And you could tell that, uh, yeah, just like you said, I mean, getting to like the core constitution of what makes Lex Luthor uh, so obsessive about Superman, it was, it's just perfect, perfect moment. For sure. I, I guess going back to to the conclusion here and this this confrontation with Superman where, you know, Superman finally enters the picture and, and Lex is imbued with all of this power. He you mentioned this before, right, where he shows Superman various moments from his history, right? And and makes Superman feel the emotions that you know, those around him were for example, when he dies, right? He Lex makes Superman feel what, what Lois felt. The assumption that Lex is making is that Superman is incapable of feeling this kind of emotion himself, right? That he only can only pretend or approximate what, what it would feel like. And the turning point is when, you know, Superman, Clark, thinks of losing his own father, which had happened in the books, again, under the, the Jeff Johns uh, tenure. And that's, of course, when Lex realizes that Clark is Superman. So we get a few pages of the dynamic that I'm always talking about on this podcast that I want to see more of where Lex knows, because I think it's fascinating, but we get a few pages of that. I, I guess it, it was interesting to me that Lex seemed to genuinely think Superman doesn't feel those things. I, I guess in my mind, even though Lex might say that, I guess I don't necessarily think he actually believes it, but it seems like he does. Yeah, I. you know, it, it's funny. That didn't occur to me. Um, the, the, the idea at least that, um, he would always assume that, you know, his, the, the enemy that he's devoted himself to is equal in all respects. I bought what the story was saying just because it seems like even as intelligent as Luther is, he, ex he is still at the end of the day, extremely deluded and, um, and honestly bigoted, right? I mean, Luther is very much a human supremacist. And I think that that's what it was trying to drive home. I like what you're saying, though, about the idea of him hating Superman in spite of 
potentially understanding that he's just as capable of feeling uh, anything that a human being does, if not more, right? Like the, certainly the Grant Morrison approach uh, that Superman is the, has the ability to see and to feel far more, which is a source of compassion as opposed to what we normally think of um, aliens being cold and distant instead makes Superman warm and empathetic. Um, but in this instance, I don't know, it just seemed like a reinforcement of that human supremacist attitude that really the post burn Luther has exhibited in spades. Um, but there's, there's a couple of different ways to play that. And I, I like the the concept of what you're talking about because that reinforces the obstinacy, right? That he just, he accepts, but doesn't uh, still doesn't welcome this guy's encroachment onto his planet. Um, but I do think that there is something to be said about his um, his bigoted attitude toward aliens getting in the way of understanding an essential truth about Superman, which is that he does feel and he potentially feels more than we do even. Um, and that's a source of, of strength. And it's it's something that humanity and the planet have benefited from as a result. Um, but a refusal to see that when confronted with that, there's something that just feels very truthful about like a total uh, inability to believe it, even when presented with incontrovertible evidence, like as someone who uh, seems to uh, uh, appreciate hard facts as much as he does, he really doesn't because he feels such strong hatred that even when elevated to this more powerful position, he still can't get over. Um, I like what that says about um, just his arrested development to a degree um, because it just, it, it, again, it just reinforces why they are so Superman and Lex Luthor are so diametrically opposed. But I also like the idea. In fact, I would like to see, a story um, more explicitly play with the idea that, oh yeah, he knows that Superman can feel anything that a human being does, but he still doesn't like him. So he's not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Now you made a great case for the way that played out. I think that's, that's the thing with Lex. You, you, there are different ways to play it and interpret it. And they, you know, each lend themselves to different things. I think for myself, I, and especially having, done all those Lex episodes, I think I'm always looking for some redeeming quality, some humanity. I think that stems from watching Smallville. I, I don't, absent that, I don't know that I would necessarily look for that so much, but it's like you watch that show, as we've talked about, <laughs> you know, and you see everything that he goes through and, 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 and from where he starts to where he ends up. And, you know, there's, there's such a tragedy to the character. I thought of Smallville in two instances in, in action 900. So the first is at the beginning when he, and I think it's that one, or it might be the one before when it might be the one before where he and Lois first go into space. And he's talking about how like everything has led him to this. It was like right out of the season seven finale Arctic of, of Smallville where he's confronting Clark in the fortress. And he's like, all my sacrifices, everything my father put me through, it's all been for this. Anyway, that made me think of it. And then when he, has that moment with Superman, right? Where Superman is recalling Jonathan's death. I forget the exact exchange, but he, you know, Lex expresses that he was not sorry when his own father died. When of course we know he was responsible for his own father dying in the comic and on Smallville, but he expresses something to the extent of, of, 
I mean, essentially jealousy, right? Like that Superman got those parents, whereas Lex got the ones he did. And again, I mean, that's, I think, a core theme in Smallville where you see he wants what Clark has. He wants the kind, nurturing parents. He wants the girlfriend who cares for him. He, you know, he just wants to be loved. This is poor guy. <laughs> and, and he can never get it. But, uh, you know, so there were a couple of moments that really called to mind my favorite version of the character <laughs> from, from Smallville. Uh, so I just wanted to mention those. No, and I think that that's a perfectly uh, well-expressed and well-encapsulated uh, expression of uh, another dynamic that sometimes doesn't get the uh, the play that it probably deserves. You're you're right in pointing out um, how Smallville just hit that uh, pitch perfect, particularly in the early seasons before their antagonism really boiled over. Right, there was just the Rosenbaum did a, an excellent job of just playing a look in the direction of Clark hugging his parents as having the, the somber quality that you would expect someone who really craves that to have without wanting to give anything away. You know, it was just, it was really well performed in that moment where uh, in action 900 that the end of um, the Brainiac story is revisited. Uh, it certainly calls that to mind, but it also, I think at the end of the day, more than giving us a statement about Luther uh, is designed to be more of a statement about Superman himself, because Luther just so easily assumes that everything comes easy to Superman. And when confronted with the totality of his life experiences, he's so astonished that Superman just refuses to break. And, um, and I love what that says about Superman's desire and willingness to go the distance uh, to, to pursue what he believes in and to, to uphold um, the, the order that he determines is the correct course of action. Uh, and he, I think he says, do your worst, Luther. I won't break. And um, for the reader, I think it becomes even more emotional. And I'm sure it was the same for you, you know, for any big Superman fan who's, um, you know, given a tour of mostly the character's recent history and all of the trials and tribulations that he's gone through because we saw his death, of course, and we saw uh, Chris sacrificing himself at the end of Last Son. Um, and Rags Morales, I think, even he, uh, brought a page in there. Uh, and, of course, the destruction of his home planet is something that weighs on his heart heavily, even if he may not have been able to fully perceive it. But all of that stuff just contributes to uh, the constitution of Superman as a character. And it also flies in the face of a longstanding perception that Luther has certainly in the story, but that also a lot of people have uh, that Superman's a character that, you know, no pathos, nothing can harm him. Uh, he's your grandfather's superhero and all of those erroneous ideas that people have. These pages show that's not the case. You know, he's someone that has suffered on a different scale, certainly, but um, he has faced his own uh, crucibles several times over and just comes out stronger for it. Absolutely. I mean, I know you've hit on this a couple of times about the criticisms uh, that, that you hear from certain detractors that we hear from, <laughs> from certain people and, you know, kind of tying this back to you know, one of the things we started with. Yeah, it's been not on the podcast because the people who are coming on are either Superman fans or at least open you know to being a superman right, yeah, fan sure. but it is a weird like it is a weird unexpected thing to have to 
defend the character. And, you know, we do do that on the show where we talk about, well, some people say this about the character. Here's our response. Or, and, you know, of course, you see it on, online and social media. And it, it is a weird thing. And I, I guess our perspectives are very different as fans of the character. But it's like you, I don't know. It, it is surprising to me that <laughs> this character, of all the characters, often requires that much of a defense. But we're here to to mount one as as needed. Yeah. <laughs> is there yeah, anything I mean, else about uh, about Black Ring that uh, I know we haven't you know uh, poured through every issue per se? But is there anything else uh, that that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Oh, I just uh, we mentioned the the brief interaction with the Joker, but he actually interacts with quite a few different villains over the course of this story, and um, it's kind of an all star lineup. And uh, you know, we don't normally see those kinds of interactions from Luther's perspective, and that's something that I also find a great deal of value in. You know, seeing how he interacts with Deathstroke, seeing how he interacts with the Secret Six, because there is an issue of that series that is involved here, and I think it's in the um, in the collected editions as well. Um, and even Grodd shows up, you know, or Mr. Mind at the very beginning. I mean, there's there's a wide cast that Cornell draws from uh, that only enrich um, the the tapestry of villainy across the DC Comics universe that I really appreciated. And not all of the choices of characters that he brings into the fold are totally expected. Even the Joker, to a certain degree, um, you know, I, I would actually probably expect to see him more than someone like Mr. Mind or even potentially someone like Grodd uh, just because their positions as villains of the DC universe are rather unchallenged. But um, every single time another character was pulled into this, it just made things so fun. And the balancing of the tones between the fun right before that final declarative statement about both who Superman and Lex Luthor are in the final issue uh, it was really, really well balanced. It didn't feel like uh, tones in this story were competing with each other. Um, I thought that it flowed very nicely. And of course, uh, a lot of the emotional expression that you get comes from the, the, the beauty and the cleanliness of Pete Woods. You know, I think that he did a phenomenal job over the course of this story. And all of the different collaborators that were brought into the last issue really did make it feel like a celebration of this dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. No, well said. I, I think the, the the last thought that I, I I guess I have about it is going back to what you were saying a minute ago in in nine hundred, where you know Lex has that moment with Superman. You know, why won't you break? And again, this idea of the two of them as as two sides of the same coin, because you know Lex similarly going back to that death issue, he doesn't break, right? He he's he's not gonna. He's not gonna beg. He's not gonna plead. He, I mean, he he you know does try to barter, but that's you know, I, I think he quickly, you know, understands the reality of, of the situation there. Uh, so, again, it's like these two guys who, you know, and especially in this iteration, this post-Infinite Crisis era where their past in Smallville was restored. I mean, it wasn't as involved as what we saw on the TV show, but there is still this history of, of them coming from the same place. So, again, just the 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 tragedy of where each of them go. And then, you know, Lex ends this story, his his ultimate power has dissipated, and with it, the knowledge that Clark is Superman, and he just kind of disappears into one of the spheres, right? And yeah. and I don't, and I've actually not read Reign of the Doomsdays. So I don't know if he pops up in that, or is that his last appearance until New 52? 
I, my perception is because I haven't read Reign of the Doomsday in a long time either. I just remember being really disappointed in it when it started and just kind of felt like this is how we're leaving this era of Superman behind. You know, Batman gets a grand send off all, all for all intents and purposes. And this is how we're choosing to, to end. Super. I, I was a little bit bitter uh, at the time. Maybe I should go back and revisit it just for the sake of uh, of completeness. But no, as far as I know. This was at least the last major substantive appearance that Lex would have before showing up was in action number two, or maybe it was number one. Uh, I think it was number. Yeah, it was number one. Yeah. Oh, you're chugging energy drinks yep. and stuff. Yep. Dr. Luther, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> How could I forget? So it's, it's interesting. Like that's, you know, that's his, his send off before the new 52. But I got to say, I, I really, really enjoyed reading these stories and I, I especially enjoyed this conversation. I, I thank you so much for taking part. Was there anything else that, that you wanted to say that, that we didn't get to before we sign off? I don't think so. I think we went around the world. All uh, I'll repeat is that um, in terms of both of these stories, they're absolutely worth revisiting. Um, I, I'm fortunate to have uh, the two hardcover collections of black ring. I do not have collections of uh, Camelot falls, but I might want to track those down now because that was a far more enjoyable reading experience than I remember. And I think it's because of what we talked about, the ability to sit down and just read that story uh, with the benefit of hindsight and being able to jump uh, across. They weren't really filler issues, but the issues that didn't have anything to directly do with that. Uh, that was a fun experience too. And it, I, I think that we both talked about ways that it extracted a lot of uh, really interesting and substantive meaning out of what Superman's place is in uh, certainly in the DCU, but also just in his own corner of it. So uh, no, these are great choices. So thank you again for the invitation. I really appreciate the chance to revisit both of these because it's not a bad time at all. No, my pleasure. Really. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. It was great having you on the show. And I, I look forward to the next time that, uh, that you and I can podcast together. So thank you. Absolutely. Most of Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to make that happen sooner rather than later. Very good. All right. So thank you again to Chris. Audience, thank you as always. I really appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you come back for our next all new episode in one week. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Support the show and receive exclusive additional content, including my DC Movie Rewatch podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show. Also, be sure to explore the other shows within the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, which is home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, all hosted by yours truly. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Visit flatsquirrelproductions.com for more. Thank you all.